Section 7 of The Elements of Geology. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Elements of Geology by William Harmon Norton. Chapter 3, Part 2. Young River Valleys. Infancy. The Red River of the North, a region in northwest Minnesota, and the adjacent portions of North Dakota and Manitoba, was so recently covered by the waters of an extinct lake known as Lake Agassiz, that the surface remains much as it was left when the lake was drained away. The flat floor, spread smooth with lake-laid silts, is still a plain to the eye as level as the sea. Across it the Red River of the North and its branches run in narrow, ditch-like channels, steep-sided and shallow, not exceeding sixty feet in depth, their gradients differing little from the general slopes of the region. The trunk streams have but few tributaries. The river system, like a sapling with few limbs, is still undeveloped. Along the banks of the trunk streams, short gullies are slowly lengthening headwards, like growing twigs which are sometime to become large branches. The flat interstream areas are as yet but little scored by drainage lines, and in wet weather water lingers in ponds in any initial depressions on the plain. Contours in order to read the topographic maps of the textbook and the laboratory, the student should know that contours are lines drawn on maps to represent relief. All points on any given contour being of equal height above sea level. The contour interval is the uniform vertical distance between two adjacent contours and varies on different maps. To express regions of faint relief, a contour interval of 10 or 20 feet is commonly selected, while in mountainous regions a contour interval of 250, 500 or even 1,000 feet may be necessary in order that the contours may not be too crowded for easy reading. Whether a river begins its life on a lake plain, as in the example just cited, or on a coastal plain lifted from beneath the sea or on a spread of glacial drift left by the retreat of continental ice sheets, such as covers much of Canada and the northeastern parts of the United States, its infantile stage presents the same characteristic features. A narrow and shallow valley with undeveloped tributaries and undrained interstream areas Groundwater stands high and exuding in the undrained initial depressions forms marshes and lakes. Lakes. Lakes are perhaps the most obvious of these fleeting features in, of infancy. They are short-lived, for their destruction is soon accomplished by several means. As a river system advances towards maturity, the deepening and extending valleys of the tributaries lower the groundwater surface and invade the undrained depressions of the region. 
Lakes having outlets are drained away as their basin rims are cut down by the outflowing streams, a slow process where the rim is of hard rock, but a rapid one where it is of soft material such as glacial drift. Lakes are effaced also by the filling of their basins. Inflowing streams and the wash of rains bring in waste. Waves abrade the shore and strew the debris worn from it over the lake bed. Shallow lakes are often filled with organic matter from decaying vegetation. Does the outflowing stream from a lake carry sediment? How does this fact affect its erosive power on hard rock, on loose material? Lake Geneva is a well-known example of a lake in process of obliteration. The inflowing Rhone has already displaced the waters of the lake for a length of twenty miles with the waste brought down from the high Alps. For this distance there extends up the Rhone Valley an alluvial plain which has grown lakeward at the rate of a mile and a half since Roman times, as proved by the distance inland at which a Roman port now stands. How rapidly a lake may be silted up under exceptionally favourable conditions is illustrated by the fact that over the bottom of the artificial lake of 35 square miles formed behind the great dam across the Colorado River at Austin, Texas, sediments 39 feet deep gathered in seven years. Lake Mendota, one of the many beautiful lakes of southern Wisconsin, is rapidly cutting back the soft glacial drift of its shores by means of the abrasion of its waves. While the shallow basin is thus broadened, it is also being filled with the waste, and the time is brought nearer when it will be so shoaled that vegetation can complete the work of its effacement. Along the margin of a shallow lake, mosses, water lilies, grasses, and other water-loving plants grow luxuriantly. As their decaying remains accumulate on the bottom, the ring of marsh broadens inward. The lake narrows gradually to a small pond set in the midst of a wide bog and finally disappears. All stages in this process of extinction may be seen among the countless lakelets which occupy sags in the recent sheets of glacial drift in the northern states, and more numerous than the lakes which still remain are those already thus filled with carbonaceous matter derived from the carbon dioxide of the atmosphere. Such fossil lakes are marked by swamps or level meadows underlain with muck. The Advance to Maturity The infantile stage is brief. As a river advances towards maturity, the initial depressions, the lake basins of its area, are gradually effaced. By the furrowing action of the rain wash and the headward lengthening of tributaries, a branch work of drainage channels grows until it covers the entire area and not an acre is left on which the fallen raindrop does not find already cut for it an uninterrupted downward path which leads it on by way of gully, brook and river to the sea. The initial surface of the land, by whatever agency it was modelled, is now wholly destroyed. The valley is all reduced to valley slopes. The longitudinal profile of a stream. 
This at first corresponds with the initial surface of the region on which the stream begins to flow, although its way may lead through basins and down steep descents. The successive profiles to which it reduces its bed are illustrated in figure 51. As the gradient or rate of descent of its bed is lowered, the velocity of the river is decreased until its lessening energy is wholly consumed in carrying its load and it can no longer erode its bed. The river is now at grade and its capacity is just equal to its load. If now its load is increased, the stream deposits and thus builds up or aggrades its bed. On the other hand, if its load is diminished, it has energy to spare and resuming its work of erosion degrades its bed. In either case, the stream continues aggrading or degrading until a new gradient is found where the velocity is just sufficient to move the load and here again it reaches grade. V. Valleys Vigorous rivers, well armed with waste, make short work of cutting their beds to grade, and thus erode narrow, steep-sided gorges, only wide enough at the base to accommodate the stream. The steepness of the valley slopes depends upon the relative rates at which the bed is cut down by the stream and the sides are worn back by the weather. In resistant rock, a swift, well-laden stream may saw out a gorge whose sides are nearly or even quite vertical. But as a rule, young valleys whose streams have not yet reached grade are V-shaped. Their sides flare at the top because here the rocks have longest been opened up to the action of the weather. Some of the deepest canyons may be found where a rising landmass, either mountain range or plateau, has long maintained, by its continued uplift, the rivers of the region above grade. In the northern hemisphere, the north sides of river valleys are sometimes of more gentle slope than the south sides. Can you suggest a reason? The Grand Canyon of the Colorado River in Arizona the Colorado River trenches the high plateau of northern Arizona with a colossal canyon 218 miles long and more than a mile in greatest depth. The rocks in which the canyon is cut are for the most part flat-lying massive beds of limestones and sandstones with some shales beneath which in places harder crystalline rocks are disclosed. Where the canyon is deepest, its walls have been profoundly dissected. Lateral ravines have widened into immense amphitheaters, leaving between them long ridges of mountain height, buttressed and rebuttressed with flanking spurs and carved into majestic architectural forms. From the extremity of one of these promontories, it is two miles or more across the gulf to the point of the one opposite, and the heads of the amphitheatres are thirteen miles apart. The lower portion of the canyon is much narrower, figure 54, and its walls of dark crystalline rock sink steeply to the edge of the river, a swift, powerful stream a few hundred 
feet wide, turbid with reddish silt, by means of which it continually rasps its rocky bed as it hurries on. The Colorado is still deepening its gorge. In the Grand Canyon its gradient is seven and one-half feet to the mile, but as in all ungraded rivers the descent is far from uniform, graded reaches in soft rock alternate with steeper declivities in hard rock, forming rapids such as, for example, a stretch of ten miles where the fall averages twenty-one feet to the mile. Because of these dangerous rapids, the few exploring parties who have traversed the Colorado Canyon have done so at the hazard of their lives. The canyon has been shaped by several agencies. Its depth is due to the river which has soared its way far toward the base of a lofty rising plateau. Acting alone, this would have produced a slit-like gorge little wider than the breadth of the stream. The impressive width of the canyon and the magnificent architectural masses which fill it are owing to two causes. Running water has gulched the walls, and weathering has everywhere attacked and driven them back. The horizontal harder beds stand out in long lines of vertical cliffs, often hundreds of feet in height, at whose feet talus slopes contain the outcrop of the weaker strata. As the upper cliffs have been sapped and driven back by the weather, broad platforms are left at their bases and the sides of the canyon descend to the river by gigantic steps. Far up and down the canyon the eye traces these horizontal layers like the flutings of an elaborate moulding, distinguishing each by its contour as well as by its colour and thickness. The Grand Canyon of the Colorado is often and rightly cited as an example of the stupendous erosion which may be accomplished by a river, and yet the Colorado is a young stream, and its work is no more than well begun. It has not yet wholly reached grade, and the great task of the river and its tributaries, the task of levelling the lofty plateau to a low plain, and of transporting it grain by grain to the sea, still lies almost entirely in the future. Waterfalls and Rapids Before the bed of a stream is reduced to grade, it may be broken by abrupt descents, which give rise to waterfalls and rapids. Such breaks in a river's bed may belong to the initial surface over which it began its course. Still more commonly are they developed in the rock mass through which it is cutting its valley. Thus, whenever a stream leaves harder rocks to flow over softer ones, the latter are quickly worn below the level of the former, and a sharp change in slope with a waterfall or rapid results. At the time of flood, young tributaries with steeper courses than that of the trunk stream may bring down stones and finer waste which the gentler current cannot move along and throw them as a dam across its way. The rapids thus formed are also ephemeral, 
for as the gradient of the tributaries is lowered the main stream becomes able to handle a smaller and finer load which they discharge a rare class of falls is produced where the minor tributaries of a young river are not able to keep pace with their master stream in the erosion of their beds because of their smaller volume and thus join it by plunging over the side of its gorge but as the river approaches grade and slackens its down cutting the tributaries sooner or later overtake it and effacing their falls unite with it on a level waterfalls and rapids of all kinds are evanescent features of a river's youth like lakes they are soon destroyed and if any long time had already elapsed since their formation they would have been obliterated already local base levels that balanced condition called grade where a river neither degrades its bed by erosion nor aggrades it by deposition is first attained along reaches of soft rocks ungraded outcrops of hard rocks remaining as barriers which give rise to rapids or falls until these barriers are worn away they constitute local base levels below which level the stream up valley from them cannot cut they are eroded to grade one after another beginning with the least strong or the one nearest the mouth of the stream in a similar way the surface of a lake in a river's course constitutes for all inflowing streams a local base level which disappears when the basin is filled or drained mature and old rivers maturity is the stage of a river's complete development and most effective work the river system now has well under way its great task of wearing down the land mass which it drains and carrying it particle by particle to the sea the relief of the land is now at its greatest for the main channels have been sunk to grade while the divides remain but little worn below their initial altitudes groundwater now stands low the runoff washes directly to the streams with the least delay and loss by evaporation in ponds and marshes the discharge of the river is therefore at its height the entire region is dissected by streamways the area of valley slopes is now largest and sheds to the streams a heavier load of waste than ever before at maturity the river system is doing its greatest amount of work both in erosion and in the carriage of water and of waste to the sea lateral erosion on reaching grade a river ceases to scour its bed and it does not again begin to do so until some change in load or volume enables it to find grade at a lower level on the other hand a stream erodes its banks at all stages in its history and with graded rivers this process called lateral erosion or planation is especially important the current of a stream follows the outer side of all curves or bends in the channel 
and on this side it excavates its bed the deepest and continually wears and saps its banks. On the inner side deposition takes place in the more shallow and slower moving water. The inner bank of bends is thus built out while the outer bank is worn away. By swinging its curves against the valley sides a graded river continually cuts a wider and wider floor. The V Valley of Youth is thus changed by planation to a flat floored valley with flaring sides which gradually become subdued by the weather to gentle slopes. While widening their valleys, streams maintain a constant width of channel, so that a wide floored valley does not signify that it ever was occupied by a river of equal width. The gradient. The gradients of graded rivers differ widely. A large river with a light load reaches grade on a faint slope, while a smaller stream, heavily burdened with waste, requires a steep slope to give it velocity sufficient to move the load. The Platte, a graded river of Nebraska, with its headwaters in the Rocky Mountains, is enfeebled by the semi-arid climate of the Great Plains and surcharged with the waste brought down both by its branches in the mountains and by those whose tracks lie over the soft rocks of the plains. It is compelled to maintain a gradient of eight feet to the mile in western Nebraska. The Ohio reaches grade with a slope of less than four inches to the mile from Cincinnati to its mouth and the powerful Mississippi washes along its load with a fall of but three inches per mile from Cairo to the Gulf. Other things being equal, which of graded streams will have the steeper gradient, a trunk stream or its tributaries, a stream supplied with gravel or one with silt? Other factors remaining the same, what changes would occur if the plat should increase in volume. What changes would occur if the load should be increased in amount or in coarseness? The Old Age of Rivers As rivers pass their prime, as denudation lowers the relief of the region, less waste and finer is washed over the gentler slopes of the lowering hills, with smaller loads to carry, the rivers now deepen their valleys and find grade with fainter declivities nearer the level of the sea. This limit of the level of the sea beneath which they cannot erode is known as base level. Footnote. The term base level is also used to designate the close approximation to sea level to which streams are able to subdue the land. As streams grow old, they approach more and more closely to base level, although they are never able to attain it. Some slight slope is needed that water may flow and waste be transported over the land. Meanwhile, the relief of the land has ever lessened, the master streams and their main tributaries now wander with sluggish currents over the broad valley floors 
which they have planed away, while under the erosion of their innumerable branches and the wear of the weather, the divides everywhere are lowered and subdued to more and more gentle slopes. Mountains and high plateaus are thus reduced to rolling hills and at last to plains, surmounted only by such hills as may still be unreduced to the common level, because of the harder rocks of which they are composed, or because of their distance from the main erosion channels. Such regions of faint relief, worn down to near base level by sub-aerial great agencies, are known as peneplains, almost plains. Any residual masses which rise above them are called monadnocks, from the name of a conical peak of New Hampshire which overlooks the now uplifted peneplain of southern New England. In its old age a region becomes mantled with thick sheets of fine and weathered waste, slowly moving over the faint slopes toward the waterways and unbroken by ledges of bare rock. In other words, the waste mantle also is now graded, and as waterfalls have been effaced in the riverbeds, so now any ledges in the wide streams of waste are worn away and covered beneath smooth slopes of fine soil. Groundwater stands high and may exude in areas of swamp. In youth, the land mass was rough-hewn and cut deep by stream erosion. In old age, the faint reliefs of the land dissolve away, chiefly under the action of the weather, beneath their cloak of waste. The Cycle of Erosion The successive stages through which a land mass passes while it is being levelled to the sea constitute together a cycle of erosion. Each stage of the cycle from infancy to old age leaves, as we have seen, its characteristic records in the forms sculptured on the land, such as the shapes of valleys and the contours of hills and plains. The geologist is thus able to determine by the landforms of any region the stage in the erosion cycle to which it now belongs, and knowing what are the earlier stages of the cycle, to read something of the geological history of the region. Interrupted Cycles So long a time is needed to reduce a landmass to base level, that the process is seldom, if ever completed, during a single uninterrupted cycle of erosion. Of all the various interruptions which may occur, the most important are gradual movements of the Earth's crust, by which a region is either depressed or elevated relative to sea level. The depression of a region hastens its old age by decreasing the gradient of streams, by destroying their power to excavate their beds and carry their loads to a degree corresponding to the amount of the depression, and by lessening the amount of work they have to do. The slackened river currents deposit their waste in hood plains, which increase in height as the subsidence continues. The lower courses of the rivers are invaded by the sea and become estuaries, 
while the lower tributaries are cut off from the trunk stream. Elevation, on the other hand, increases the activity of all agencies of weathering, erosion and transportation, restores the region to its youth and inaugurates a new cycle of erosion. Streams are given a steeper gradient, greater velocity and increased energy to carry their loads and wear their beds. They cut through the alluvium of their floodplains, leaving it on either bank as successive terraces and entrench themselves in the underlying rock. In their older and wider valleys they cut narrow, steep-walled inner gorges, in which they flow swiftly over rocky floors, broken here and there by falls and rapids where a harder layer of rock has been discovered. Winding streams on plains may thus incise their meanders in solid rock as the plains are gradually uplifted. Streams which are thus restored to their youth are said to be revived. As streams cut deeper and the valley slopes are steepened, the mantle of waste of the region undergoing elevation is set in more rapid movement. It is now removed particle by particle faster than it forms. As the waste mantle thins, weathering attacks the rocks of the region more energetically until an equilibrium is reached again. The rocks waste rapidly and their waste is as rapidly removed. Dissected Peneplains When a rise of the land brings one cycle to an end and begins another, the characteristic landforms of each cycle are found together, and the topography of the region is composite until the second cycle is so far advanced that the landforms of the first cycle are entirely destroyed. The contrast between the land surfaces of the later and the earlier cycles is most striking when the earlier had advanced to age and the later is still in youth. Thus, many peneplains which have been elevated and dissected have been recognized by the remnants of their ancient erosion surfaces and the length of time which has elapsed since their uplift has been measured by the stage to which the new cycle has advanced. The Piedmont Belt As an example of an ancient peneplain uplifted and dissected, we may cite the Piedmont Belt, a broad upland lying between the Appalachian Mountains and the Atlantic coastal plain. The surface of the Piedmont is gently rolling. The divides, which are often smooth areas of considerable width, rise to a common plain, and from them one sees in every direction an even skyline, except where in places some lone hill or ridge may lift itself above the general level. Figure 62. The surface is an ancient one, for the mantle of residual waste lies deep upon it. Soils are reddened by long oxidation, and the rocks are rotted to a depth of scores of feet. At present, however, the waste mantle is not forming so rapidly as it is being removed. The streams of the upland are actively engaged in its destruction. They flow swiftly in narrow, rock-walled valleys over rocky beds. 
this contrast between the young streams and the aged surface which they are now so vigorously dissecting can only be explained by the theory that the region once stood lower than at present and has recently been upraised. If now we imagine the valleys refilled with the waste which the streams have swept away and the upland lowered, we restore the Piedmont region to the condition in which it stood before its uplift and dissection. A gently rolling plain surmounted here and there by isolated hills and ridges. The surface of the ancient Piedmont plain, as it may be restored from the remnants of it found on the divides, is not in accordance with the structures of the country rocks. Where these are exposed to view, they are seen to be far from horizontal. On the walls of river gorges they dip steeply and in various directions, and the streams flow over their upturned edges. As shown in figure 67, the rocks of the Piedmont have been folded and broken and tilted. It is not reasonable to believe that when the rocks of the Piedmont were thus folded and otherwise deformed, the surface of the region was a plain. The upturned layers have not always stopped abruptly at the even surface of the Piedmont plain, which now cuts above them. They are the bases of great folds and tilted blocks which must once have risen high in air. The complex and disorderly structures of the Piedmont rocks are those seen in great mountain ranges, and there is every reason to believe that these rocks, after their deformation, rose to mountain height. The ancient Piedmont plain cuts across these upturned rocks as independently of their structure as the even surface of the sawed stump of some great tree is independent of the direction of its fibres. Hence the Piedmont plain, as it was before its uplift, was not a coastal plain formed of strata spread in horizontal sheets beneath the sea and then uplifted, nor was it a structural plain due to the resistance of erosion from some hard, flat-lying layer of rock. Even surfaces developed on rocks of discordant structure, such as the Piedmont shows, are produced by long denudation, and we may consider the Piedmont as a peneplain formed by the wearing down of mountain ranges and recently uplifted. The Laurentian peneplain, this is the name given to a denuded surface on very ancient rocks which extends from the Arctic Ocean to the St. Lawrence River and Lake Superior, with small areas also in northern Wisconsin and New York. Throughout this U-shaped area, which encloses Hudson Bay within its arms, the country rocks have the complicated and contorted structures which characterize mountain ranges. But the surface of the area is by no means mountainous. The skyline, when viewed from the divides, is unbroken by mountain peaks or rugged hills. The surface of the arm west of Hudson Bay is gently undulating, and that of the eastern arm has been roughened to low rolling hills and dissected in places by such deep river gorges as those of the Ottawa and Saguenay. This immense area may be regarded as an ancient peneplain truncating 
the bases of long-vanished mountains and dissected after elevation. In the examples cited, the uplift has been a broad one, and to comparatively little height. Where peneplains have been uplifted to great height, and have since been well dissected, and where they have been upfolded and broken and up-tilted, their recognition becomes more difficult. Yet recent observers have found evidences of ancient lowland surfaces of erosions on the summits of the Allegheny ridges, the Cascade Mountains, figure 69, and the western slope of the Sierra Nevadas. The Southern Appalachian Region We have here an example of an area the latter part of whose geological history may be deciphered by means of its landforms. The generalized section of figure 70, which passes from west to east across a portion of the region in eastern Tennessee, shows on the west a part of the broad Cumberland Plateau. On the east is a roughened upland platform, from which rise in the distance the peaks of the Great Smoky Mountains. The plateau, consisting of strata, but little changed from their original flat-lying attitude, and the platform developed on rocks of disordered structure made crystalline by heat and pressure, both stand at the common level of the line AB. They are separated by the Appalachian Valley, 40 miles wide, cut in strata, which have been folded and broken into long, narrow blocks. The valley is traversed lengthwise by long, low ridges. The outcropping edges of the harder strata, which rise to about the same level, that of the line CD, between these ridges stretch valley lowlands at the level EF, excavated in the weaker rocks, while somewhat below them lie the channels of the present streams, now busily engaged in deepening their beds. The valley lowlands, were they planed by graded or ungraded streams? Have the present streams reached grade? Why did the streams cease widening the floors of the valley lowlands? How long since? When will they begin anew the work of lateral planation? What effect will this have on the ridges if the present cycle of erosion continues long uninterrupted? The ridges of the Appalachian Valley. Why do they stand above the valley lowlands? Why do their summits lie in about the same plain? Refilling the valleys intervening between these ridges with the material removed by the streams, what is the nature of the surface thus restored? Does this surface, CD, accord with the rock structures on which it has been developed? How may it have been made? At what height did the land stand then, compared with its present height? What elevations stood above the surface, CD? Why? What name may you use to designate them? How does the length of time needed to develop the surface, CD, compared with that needed to develop the valley lowlands. 
The platform and plateau, why do they stand at a common level AB? Of what surface may they be remnants? Is it accordant with the rock structure? How was it produced? What unconsumed masses overlooked it? Did the rocks of the Appalachian Valley stand above this surface when it was produced? Did they then stand below it? Compare the time needed to develop this surface with that needed to develop CD. Which surface is the older? How many cycles of erosion are represented here? Give the erosion history of the region by cycles, beginning with the oldest, the work done in each, and the work left undone, what brought each cycle to a close, and how long, relatively, it continued. End of section 7